Father, we pray for our city and for our nation that you would use the power of the gospel to bring healing and to bring hope. Help us now as we open your word, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A 2015 article from the Times of Israel begins this way. The unassuming slab of limestone doesn't look like much. It's crudely fractured and chipped on its sides, pockmarked with age, and is perched not too prominently on a shelf at the Israel Museum. But a smoothly hewn face and crisply etched Greek letters, still bearing faint traces of red paint, belie monumental significance. Pretty captivating intro to an article, wouldn't you think? Now, what is this article about in the Times of Israel? What is this slab of rock that belies monumental significance? Well, it's an ancient warning sign that archaeologists discovered that reads this way. And by the way, have you ever seen a keep out sign like no trespassing, keep out? Imagine seeing a keep out sign that read this way. No foreigner is permitted inside the partition and wall around the temple. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. I don't know about you, if I ran into that sign, it would give me serious pause before taking one more step, (laughs) right? It's sort of like, no trespassing, violators will be shot, and it'll be your fault, and, you know, due to the increase of ammo, no warning, shots will be fired. It's one of those kind of warning signs, except no tongue-in-cheek. The people who put that sign up were deadly serious, and they meant every word of what they said to such a degree that they got big slabs of rock, and they got chisels and hammers, and chiseled in Greek and multiple languages, That warning. So anyone who was visiting the temple precincts in Jerusalem would get the message. You might be a convert to Judaism in the first century. You're from Rome or from Greece, from some other nation. You come to the temple to worship, but you can come so far and no further. There was, in fact, a court of the Gentiles, and if you were a Gentile believer in the God of Israel, you could only go so far. Court of the women, if you were a, a Jewish woman, you could go a little further. Then there's the court of the men who could go even further than the court of the priests, all the way to the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go. Pretty ominous sounding sign, isn't it? It's like a minefield ahead kind of sign. And that's the kind of sign you might expect on a battlefield or a top secret government installation. Not something that you'd expect at a house of worship, right? Could you imagine how that would be if you came into church, like people of this ethnicity or nation go on this side. By the way, tragedy in our own history, that, that that has actually been the case, where churches have been segregated along those lines. It was located along the fence in the temple that was about a three-foot-high fence called the Soreg that separated the outer court from the inner court, from where foreigners could be to where only Jewish people could go. Foreigners could come only so far and no further. The message could not be clearer that the temple in Jerusalem and the relationship with God that it pictured and encapsulated, this promise of forgiveness, was really only for the Jews. That was what they wanted to convey. And by the way, they intended to keep it that way. There were all kinds of barriers that were put in place between Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans, different diets, different ways of dressing, and of course those warning signs on the Temple Mount itself. They intended to keep it that way. They intended to preserve the holiness of the temple. 
Now, why do I mention all that? Because you're like, I don't see any of that in our text today. Is that that word that's mentioned at the end of verse 18, Jesus says, there was not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger, this foreigner. This is the only place in the New Testament that that particular Greek word is used. And that is the exact same Greek word that was used on that sign. It was almost like a, uh, a word that everyone would recognize, oh, that's the, that's, the, that's the word from the warning sign. It's like Jesus is signaling your barriers that you have between Jew and Gentile. Look at this. They're being eradicated by faith. This guy who was an outsider who would not have been able to draw near can draw near. Why? Through faith in me. It's signaling a seismic shift in God's dealings with mankind. That he's not dealing primarily with one nation or one ethnicity, the Jewish people, but that the gospel is for all nations. That's the significance of this little paragraph. That little word, foreigner, this guy returns to give glory to God, and he doesn't just get to come into the court of the the priest. No, he gets to come into the very presence of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And beloved, that's what we're doing here today. We have gathered as God's people in his name to come into his presence. This is not just a bunch of people sitting in a room singing some songs and listening to a lecture. Hopefully this morning you are drawing near to God in your heart and worshiping him even now. Through Jesus, do not enter is transformed to let us draw near. Let us draw near. Now, what's going on here in our context? Verse 11 reminds us that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The series we are calling Journey to Jerusalem because several different times Luke punctuates the text with these reminders. Jesus has been ministering up in the Galilee region, northern part of of Palestine. He is now making his final journey to Jerusalem to go to the cross. Whenever Luke mentions Jerusalem, it's not just a geographical marker. It is a theological marker to say, yes, he's going to Jerusalem, but think about what all that entails. Him going to the cross and dying for the sins of his people so that he can make out of all the nations one new people of God. Luke makes a big emphasis on what's going to happen at Jerusalem and the significance of it, that outsiders, Samaritans, foreigners, in the context of Luke's day, women, tax collectors, prostitutes can be forgiven and granted a relationship with God, often at times when those who should have had a leg up reject him. Really quite stunning. The point of this text is that the gospel is for everyone. It doesn't matter whether you are a leper or a foreigner or a Samaritan or no matter what your background, no matter what sin you have committed, the gospel is for all nations. So let's walk through the scenes of this. Let's walk through the scenes of this. And I want us to keep Jesus at center stage. Oftentimes when this, this message is preached, the emphasis is on gratitude. And that is going to be an application we're going to make along the way. But I'm going to argue this morning, the point here is how Jesus brings outsiders in. And yes, our appropriate response is gratitude, but the, the, the hero of this story is not the Samaritan. The hero of this story is not the one guy who returned. It is the Jesus who cleanses lepers, who saves sinners, who invites the outsiders in. So this first scene, we see that Jesus cleanses lepers. So it comes to pass as he's going to Jerusalem, reminding us, uh, reminding us of what is going on in the big context. He passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. So here he is moving from, from north to south, and you know, we've got Galilee in the north, Judea, Jerusalem in the south, Samaria right in the middle. Now, we've talked about this before. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. And this was not just a racial thing. This was also a religious thing. 
The Jews regarded the Samaritans as utter and complete apostates. They had mingled the true worship of God with their own inventions. They had their own edition of the Bible and did all these things that the Jews were like, that's not okay. They worshiped in Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem. And there was a, a, a long-standing history of prejudice and hatred and hostility between these people. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a Jewish kingdom called the Hasmonean Kingdom, went and invaded Samaria, killed a bunch of them, and then forced them to convert to Judaism at the end of a sword, right? So we're talking about deep-seated prejudice and a history of hatred between these two people. Now, why does Samaria get mentioned first? Because you would think geographically you'd go Galilee, then Samaria, because it's more important in the narrative. Now, verse 12, and he entered into a certain village. Now, Luke has set this up in such a way where we don't know, is this going to be a Jewish village in Galilee or a Samaritan village in Samaria? We don't know. We're kind of in the border, right? And there's not exactly a nice little line saying, you have now entered Samaria. So we don't know, is this a Samaritan village or a Jewish village? And he comes into this village, verse 12. So as he's entering, he's, he's on the outskirts of town. He's making his way into a particular village. There met him ten men that were lepers which stood afar off. So here Jesus, he's coming into this little village, and he's encountered by a a leper colony. And we've got to understand a few things about leprosy. Uh, We'd be making a little bit of a mistake to take sort of the modern leprosy. It's called Hansen's disease, and say, uh, that has to be what's going on. In the Bible, they use leprosy to sort of cover a wide array of, of sort of skin diseases that were highly contagious Yes, could have included Hansen's disease, which, you know, famously means, you know, limbs are being eaten away and nerve function no longer works. Or it could just be any kind of skin disease that's highly contagious. Either way, here was the process laid out by the Old Testament law. If you had some form of leprosy, you would be quarantined outside of the camp, outside of town, distant from other people, so the disease can't spread. Amazing how how far ahead of the times the Bible was when it came to you know, disease spreading and that kind of thing. You had to cover your mouth, and you had to tell people, unclean, unclean. Um, really quite incredible. Here you have masking and social distancing in the Bible thousands of years before the CDC ever came along. Let's not spread these diseases. Let's protect the health of the camp as a whole by keeping disease outside of the precincts of the camp, of the town, of the village. So what did lepers do? Because they have been banished from society... They would often band together for mutual support, and people would come and sort of, you know, drop food off for them, drop alms off for them so that they could survive. Leprosy could be a bad disease physically, but really what what seems to be the the greater uh, pain that these individuals went through was the social alienation. You're, you know, we even use the phrase, you're treating that person like a leper. Like, "Mm, stay away from them. They have leprosy. You know, they're they're sort of persona non grata. They're people you want to stay away from. You don't want to catch whatever it is that they have. So these lepers, here they are in this place of social alienation and physical pain. They're banished from the synagogues, so they can't go and worship. They're banished from their homes. They're banished from their jobs. Or even banished from their families. They are outcasts. They are ceremonially unclean. They cannot go to the temple. So that's why it says they stood afar off. They're following the guidelines. Standing way off. Okay, here comes Jesus and his little cadre of followers. Unclean, unclean. Stay away from us. You don't want to catch what we have. They're following the law's demands. Now verse 13 continues. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, how do they know who Jesus is? Earlier in Luke's gospel, we find out that Jesus' reputation is spread far 
and why. They, they, know, they know who he is. Maybe they've heard him preach. Maybe they've seen him at a distance before. And they know his name, and they know that he is one who has cleansed lepers before. You can go back to Luke chapter 5 and read a, an account of him cleansing a leper. He has healed. He has raised the dead. They know here is an individual who can help. He's not just someone who maybe be able to can give us some alms. When they say have mercy on us, they don't just mean, hey, could you help us out with a, few, a little bit of spare change? They're not just saying, could you give us a few scraps of bread? Have mercy on us. Mercy in the Bible is, is a call for grace and for assistance that we cannot render to ourselves. They call him Jesus, and then they also call him Master. That's unusual. Luke is the only New Testament author to use this particular title. In every other occurrence, it's only in the mouths of the disciples. Here's people who are not only not disciples, they are lepers, and one of them is actually a Samaritan. You can't get any more outside of the people of God than these ten guys. And they're calling him Master, Lord. They're recognizing his authority. They're recognizing his humanity. They're recognizing his ability to dispense divine mercy. There is a lot packed into verse 13. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Reminds me of a confession just a chapter later with the publican in the temple. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. A plea for mercy, for pity, for help, for healing. They're recognizing the authority of Jesus. This is not just a, hey, help us out and we'll go, you know, this is a recognition of who he is. They recognize their plight is hopeless and they know that Jesus is merciful. So what happens? Verse 14. And when he saw them, He said unto them, go show yourselves unto the priests. Okay, now this is kind of unusual. What's what's going on here with this? Back in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, we get very, very extensive regulations about how to handle leprosy. Um, It's very detailed. I'm not going to go there and read it, but you can read it on your own time. But here is the basic process. You get leprosy. You get kicked outside of the camp. You get quarantined. And then when you believe that you have been cured, the disease has run its course, you've recovered from whatever you've had, you would present yourself to a priest with an appropriate offering. You would offer the offering. The priest would inspect, you know, whatever the condition was and would say, yes, clean bill of health, offer the sacrifice, and within a week you can be readmitted to society. So going to the priest was sort of the doorway back into acceptance into society. Jesus is saying, go go to the priest. Now, here's what's unusual. The other times that Jesus has healed lepers, he's healed them first. Be clean, they're, they're cleansed, and then he sends them. But here he reverses the order. He says, go, go to the priest first, and then verse 14 says, while they're going, they're healed. Why is he doing this? Is he just trying to be like, hey, let's just have some variety in the miracles. I don't like doing it the same way. It gets kind of boring. No, no I don't think that's what's going on. This requires an exercise of faith on the part of these ten individuals. They're like, okay, he didn't do the trick for us. I guess we'll go back out to our cave or wherever we've been living. We'll wait, you know, for a better opportunity. Going to the priest requires them to say, hey, we believe that this Jesus guy can heal us to such a degree we're going to take the first step to go to Jerusalem to the priests. It requires faith. It requires some level of obedience. It's stunning. All ten of them are still riddled with leprosy. Now, we can suppose their thought process is like, well, why not? Nothing else has helped. What could it hurt us? The worst thing that can happen is we get to Jerusalem, we still have leprosy, and they send us back, right? That's the worst thing that can happen. Why not? 
Or maybe one of them's like, I don't really want to go, but the others are going, so I guess I'll tag along. We've got nothing to lose. But stunningly, according to verse 14, look at verse 14. It came to pass that as they went, as they took that step of faith, they were cleansed. Leprosy gone in an instant. Leprosy gone totally. Leprosy gone completely. Leprosy gone permanently. All those wounds, scabs, became new skin. Scars went away. If they had the, the expression of leprosy, this Hansen's disease, limbs begin to grow back that had been eaten away by the disease's corruption. Here they're healed. Now, there's some echoes here of another story in the Bible that involves leprosy. Remember the story of Naaman uh, in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, like the one guy in this story, is a foreigner. Naaman, like the, the guy in this story, is healed from a distance. Naaman, like the characters in this story, is required to do something, like take a step of obedience and faith. In his case, it's to go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. There's some echoes here where Jesus is saying, like the Old Testament prophets, I am here to declare the voice of God, to declare the word of God, but I am more than a prophet. Here he does a healing at a distance without touch. Just reminding us, it's not that there's a magical touch that Jesus has, right? Like, ooh, and then he heals people, like some kind of Benny Hinn thing. But rather, the power is simply in his person. It's not some powerful word that he names it and claims. It's not some magical touch. It's not in some kind of parlor trick where he convinces them that they're better when they're not, where he's playing mind games. It's simply through his power and his authority, through his divine nature, as mediated by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, Jesus cleansing lepers, how does this, what, what, what do we get from this? I'm going to argue in a little while that of the ten, only one of them is genuinely saved. But in a, in a larger sense, this cleansing from leprosy is, is something of a, of a picture of the need that we all have. All ten of these guys, it's like a microcosm of humanity. All of them are in the same boat. All of them face the same plight. What seems to be implied later on, and we've read these verses, the one guy who comes back as a Samaritan, the implication is that the other nine are Jews. Normally, Jews, Samaritans wouldn't hang out. But listen, when you are all banished from town, kicked out of the city, those things, those, those artificial distinctions we make between you know, races and groups that are social constructs, they don't really matter anymore, right? Because of the same plight that we all have as sinners, in fact, Romans 3 makes this argument, there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no difference between Jew and Greek, between black and white, between rich and poor, or Democrat or Republican. We are all in the same sinking ship, right? We are all sinners who are on our way to hell, and it does not matter what kind of life you lived or what kind of house you lived in or what economic bracket you were in or how you voted. None of those things matter. We are sinners. We are dealing with this corruption of sin that is eating away at our soul, and banishing us from the people of God, and banishing us away from a relationship with God and from the presence of God. As Raymer read in Ephesians chapter 2, we are strangers, we are outcasts, we are separated from Christ, we are excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and we are strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That is who every one of us are. So look at verses 11 to 14. One of the lessons I take away from this is the universal condition that we all face ourselves in. All ten of these guys, in the same boat, in the same plight. And the same is true in this room. 
You say, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I have come to faith in Jesus. You're still a sinner, right? We're, we're still sinners who, who need mercy and grace and forgiveness, which I think should have an effect of humility in our hearts. Now, notice as well what the solution was. Even Just as there was this universal plight that they were, all, they were all in, there was a singular hope that they have, and it's Jesus. Up to this point, there had probably been many people who had walked down the road. Hey, this is probably on the route that the pilgrims take to Jerusalem, right? Passover is looming. There's probably tens of thousands of people going down the road. Other people could give them bread. Other people could give them money. But only Jesus could give them healing, right? The, the, the solution to our world's problems... Hey, education is a good thing, right? Coming up with more equitable systems of taxation and, you know, prosperity, great. But what is the heart of man's problem? It's the heart, right? It is sin. It is depravity. It is a broken relationship with God that leads to a broken relationship with others. And the cry for mercy is the only thing that can bring help help and bring relief. It's a cry uh, in the mouth of the repentant. It is a cry for forgiveness and grace. We come to God as desperate, undeserving sinners. And that, by the way, as we come to the table later on, we don't come to the Lord's table as, I thank you, God, that I'm not as other men are. I haven't done any horrible things this month. I thank you that I am worthy to come to the table. No, 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 we come to the table, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. That's it. I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. As I come to worship, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. Jesus cleanses lepers. Jesus cleanses lepers like you and me. We're afflicted with the leprosy of sin. We now come into this next scene. We see that Jesus wins worshipers. Jesus wins worshipers. This is sort of arranged into two panels, verses 11 to 14. The focus is on the ten. And then verses 15 to 19, the focus now becomes on the one. And there are many parallels between these two. You notice that the ten, they lifted up their voice. Now it says the one in verse 15, with a loud voice. We get the repetition of that word voice. Okay, there's something literarily going on between these, this back and forth where these elements of the two paragraphs line up with each other. Just as the first panel, verses 11 to 14, ended with a, 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 a healing formula, go show yourself to the priests, so the second panel ends with, arise, go your way, your faith has made you whole. There's similarities. Just as the first panel had them standing afar off, the second panel has the one coming close. And there's this incredible reversal that occurs. Now, what is most stunning is there, of the ten, one guy comes back and he worships Jesus. He gets it. He gets the point of why does Jesus heal? Why does God save? Let me tell you, beloved, it is not ultimately for us. It is ultimately for him. He saves for his own glory. He saves sinners so that we would become worshipers. Worship is not just kind of like an add-on to the Christian life to be like, you know, it's a really good thing if you worship. Worship is the aim of the Christian life. Worship is not just a, a nice possible outcome or result of salvation. It is the purpose of salvation. So what are the characteristics of genuine worshipers? Because I think this guy gives us an incredible portrait of what does a real worshiper look like? What does a real worshiper look like? Because you think, well, a real worshiper comes to church. Well, listen, you can be here at church and not be really worshiping God. Right? Attending church is not the same as, as worshiping. Worship is a response to the character and the holiness of God. 
So if you're here and you're just kind of going through the motions, you're not really worshiping. In fact, God says he hates that, right? Like if we come to the table and you're just like, yeah, partake of the elements, it's a cool thing to do, you're eating and drinking damnation to yourself. If you're singing hymns without thinking about what they mean or listening to sermons without taking them to heart, it's abomination to God, right? So what, 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 what does a real worshiper look like? This guy gives us, a, gives us an incredible portrait of it. For one thing, real worshipers are eager. So this man, in verse 15, when he saw that he was healed, turned back with a loud voice glorified God. There is eagerness and enthusiasm and passion here. Here he comes back from, he's on his way. Right here he's off to the priest. Jesus said, go to the priest. And he looks down, he's like, man, the leprosy's gone. The, the spots, the, the, the skin disease, the scabs, it's, it's all gone. And, and in that moment, there is an epiphany. Now, I don't know if the others noticed, if they were like, yeah, leprosy's gone, but Jesus said, go to the priest, so off to the priest we go. But this man saw something that the other nine did not. The, it was, as it were, the eyes of his faith were open. This is an awakening of sorts, as one commentator put it. So verse 15, when he saw that he was healed, he noticed something that the others did not. The eyes of faith are open. In an instant, he experienced an eye-opening, if you will, a new birth. He was brand new. He recognized that Jesus was more than just a great healer. Right? He recognized that Jesus was more than just an itinerant teacher wandering the hillsides of Galilee. For him, the thought now is forget the temple, forget the priest, forget being given the clean bill of health and welcomed back into society. I don't even want that. His priorities have changed. For the other nine, go back to the priest, clean bill of health, we can go home. For this guy, he says, home for me now is Jesus. The temple for me now is Jesus. Here's the irony. The other ten, yeah, they did go to the priests, but this one went to the priest. He doesn't disobey. He obeys in the truest sense because who is the great high priest? It's Jesus. Who is the one who declares unclean sinners clean? It's Jesus. So off he comes. What happened in that moment? His heart was captured by Jesus. An exuberant worship and spontaneous gratitude arrested him. So I get the sense he's going one way, and he's just like, guys, this is incredible. And he spins around, and I imagine he ran back to Jesus. He's like, i got to get back to that guy before he keeps going down the road. Like, I owe everything to him. That's his heart. We glimpse the eagerness of genuine worship here. He would sooner return to Jesus than see the priests. In verse 12, he stood at a distance. But here... Verse 15, verse 16, he draws near in worship. You see, that is what grace does. We were distant from God. It's just a formal thing. There's God way, way, way out there. There's this God who's sort of this generic sky God, right? Like there's this God who's just like, hey, be nice to people. But when grace gets a hold of your heart, when the gospel gets a hold of your heart, that God who was distant now becomes the God to whom you owe worship. And you say, I want to get close to him. Does that, does that mark your heart? One of the signs that you have been forgiven is that you earnestly desire to worship God. And again, I mean more than coming to church. I mean a real relationship with him day in and day out. This worship is not the perfunctory mumbling of a few ritualistic phrases like, oh, hey, oh, this, is, this is not just come to church and stand up and sit down and Jesus paid it all and mumble through some hymns that I don't really even think about what they mean. This comes from the heart. He shouted praise to God. There's emotion in this. It says, with a loud voice, he glorified God. He was glorifying God. And I get the implication he never stopped. 
Not perfunctory, but passionate. If we know from what we have been saved, we will worship with eagerness. We won't worry about what other people think. There are probably people who are like, who is this crazy guy? Wasn't he the leper? Like, what got into him? We'll be overcome with excitement. Now, I don't mean emotion for emotion's sake. But God has made us as emotional beings. Right? And worshiping God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, I think implies more than just like statute-like, stoic, theologizing, right? There's exuberance and heart in our, in our worship. So this portrait of genuine worship that Jesus wins, it's, it's eager worship, it's exuberant worship, but it's also humble. So we, we see him, he's glorifying God. Look at verse 16, and he fell down on his face at his feet. Now, this doesn't mean he came along and tripped on a rock and smacked his face on the ground, right? But this is, this is sprawling himself at Jesus' feet saying, you're the king and I'm giving you homage and loyalty and worship because you are my superior and I owe it all to you. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. It's to say, you're the king. You're the master and and I am yours forever. I I swear fealty and loyalty to you for the rest of my days. That is what that conveys. By the way, that word worship uh, doesn't necessarily appear directly in the text, but the idea is there. It very much has the idea to bow yourself before God. Worship's not about having a big party, right, with like strobe lights and a fog machine. It's about humbling yourself before God. It's about responding to his character in awe and adoration. It's humble worship. This is, here's what is stunning. This apostate Samaritan, right, this guy who's an outcast, this guy who is hated because of his ethnicity, this guy who is hated because of his disease, saw more clearly than even the most orthodox Jews did. What? That Jesus was equal with God. Did you notice something here? In verse 15, who's he worshiping? God. Verse 16, who's he worshiping? Jesus. And there's no contradiction between those two. He's recognizing God, Jesus, like there's somehow this equality, this relationship between the two. They both are worthy of my worship. He doesn't see like, well, there's God, I'll give him worship. And then there's Jesus, who's just kind of this man. Like, he's recognizing something that most people did not get. Jesus is equal with God because Jesus is God. This is humble worship. He's throwing himself at Jesus' feet, saying, you're the king. So when we worship and we walk away thinking, man, did I like the songs today? You know, did pastor have any good jokes? Like, did we get out on time today? And, and well, whatever. We begin asking about how, how did this make me feel? We're asking really the wrong question. The question we should be asking about our worship is, did it conform to God's word and did it glorify God? Did it glorify the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? Did it, did it put our focus on the God who has saved us in Jesus? Was it Christ-centered? That should be the question that we are asking, not did I like it today? Now, what kind of worshipers are genuine worships, worshipers, eager worshipers? They're humble worshipers, but they're also grateful worshipers. He fell down on his face, verse 16, giving him thanks. There's a lot of references in the Bible to giving thanks. And most of the time, the object of the giving thanks is God the Father. We give thanks to God the Father. We thank him for his blessings. This is the only place in the entire Bible where the object of giving thanks is God the Son. There's plenty of places where he's the object of praise and prayer. But specifically, this act of saying thank you, that is stunning. 
Genuine worship is grateful worship. Now, what, what generates gratitude? What really generates gratitude? Listen, if you think you are owed something, you have to be grateful. You think, this is what was coming to me. Thank you, I deserve this. It's sort of like a perfunctory, thank you, and now thanks and goodbye, let me go on with my life. But I mean, real, genuine gratitude arises from a sense of deserving nothing, right? That is why gratitude and an entitlement mentality cannot coexist. If you feel, I'm entitled to this, 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 and this, and this, when you don't get it, you get angry and bitter and petty. But if you have an attitude of grace and gratitude, when you do get it, you'll be grateful. In other words, the more we see ourselves as the Bible shows us to be, right? The more we see ourselves, I'm a sinner, I don't deserve anything from God. The more we'll have a, this is better than I deserve kind of attitude. Uh, I, I know some people, when I kind of like, like it when they do this, you say, how are you doing today? They say, better than I deserve. Now, it can be kind of like a, just an empty cliche, but what a good reminder. How are you doing today? Better than you deserve. If you had a better than you deserve attitude, you'd probably be a much more pleasant person to be with. You'd have a much more robust relationship with God. Your prayer life would be richer as you recognize, I'm owed nothing. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I was owed nothing. He is owed everything. So the end of verse 16 now drops the bombshell in the story. And he was what? A Samaritan. Right? This hated group of half-breed, compromised apostates. That's how the Jews viewed them. There wasn't really any group that they despised more than Samaritans. They're like, hey, at least the Romans, those Gentiles, like they've got their thing. But Samaritans, oh, man, they're, they're just horrible. That's, that's how they viewed them. So for Jesus' audience, this would have been, Jesus, you realize this guy who's worshiping you, the disciples standing around, I can imagine them being like, he's a Samaritan, you should probably like, keep your distance. You don't want to get, no, 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 stay, stay away from him. Push him away. Don't, don't let him draw near to you. He was a Samaritan. And here's the thing that is amazing. Jesus welcomed that worship. He didn't turn it away. He didn't say, no, you're the wrong ethnicity. I don't care about ethnicity. You have the right heart. The reason why this man was so grateful is he recognized that he was so undeserving. Now, Luke has given us a few little hints about Samaritans. In Luke chapter 9, Samaritans had rejected Jesus and turned him away because he was going to Jerusalem. They're like, we don't like Jerusalem. But in Luke 10, Jesus tells a story of the famous, what, good Samaritan. That was a bombshell. Here's another one. The guy who comes back and does the right thing and worships Jesus truly is who? A Samaritan. He's presented positively. James Edwards notes this. By worshiping Jesus, this man fulfilled the chief purpose for which Israel existed. He got what the Jews should have gotten. That Here's your Messiah. Worship him. And they missed it, but he got it. Beloved, like that Samaritan... We're outsiders who don't deserve to be here. Every last one of us. You think that you do deserve to be here? You're actually not a Christian. Jesus wins worshipers, worshipers who are grateful and humble and eager. We come now to this final scene where Jesus talks in verses 17, 18, and 19, where he responds to this. And we see here that Jesus saves Sinners. This is kind of the climax. Everything's sort of building up to these, these final pronouncements in verses 17 to 19. Jesus answering said, we're not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? 
Are there not found any that return to give glory to God, save this foreigner, save this stranger, save this outcast? And he said to him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Literally, thy faith hath saved thee. Because faith has saved you. Faith has brought you in. Jesus saves sinners through faith. This man was not saved by his gratitude. Let me make that point very clear. It's not like, oh, look, he was grateful, and therefore he got saved by being grateful. Rather, gratitude, worship, is proof of saving faith. It's a question. Does a pulse make you alive? Well, technically, no. Your, your pulse is not like, oh, I have a, uh, my pulse is technically... No, you, you have a pulse because you're alive, right? It's not the other way around. In the same way, gratitude is not what makes you saved, Worship is not what makes you saved, but it is a definite proof that you are saved. So if you don't have a pulse, there's a real problem, right? If there's not gratitude and worship in your heart, there's a real problem spiritually. Where faith is, there is also gratitude. So faith is the sole basis of inclusion. Jesus is almost stunned. You can almost hear the shock in his voice. Where's the other night? Remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And in his humanity... He has submitted his ability to use omniscience. That's a divine uh, attribute of knowing all things. That's part of his divine nature. He has submitted that to God the Father to be mediated by the the Holy Spirit. He's not just willy-nilly using his omniscience. So in his humanity, right, there's almost shock at, where's the other nine? Like, I, I healed all ten of these guys. Why are the other nine not coming back to worship? Why are they not coming back to give glory to God? The other nine perhaps were so caught up in the excitement of their healing that they did not bother to return to Jesus. They received a blessing from Jesus, and they were so excited about getting back to life that they didn't bother getting back to Jesus. So only the foreigner, the stranger, verse 18, that's that term we talked about at the outset of the message, the one who had his, you know, the foreigner, don't come any closer or you'll die, gets closer than any of the others. The other nine could have gone much closer in the temple precincts, but only this one got into the very presence of God in the person of Jesus. This word was a catchword among the Jews, a verbal boundary marker between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews felt like they had exclusive claim on God, that they alone worshipped him correctly. But the irony of the story, it is the one, the outcast, who returns and worships. Why was he included? Well, he was included by the grace of Christ, but he was included because he exercised saving faith. It is faith, not ethnicity. It is faith, not national heritage. It is faith and not good works. It is faith, not baptism. It is faith, not church membership. It's faith, not being a moral, nice, good person that includes us in the people of God. In a few moments when we, and we, when we celebrate the Lord's table, the Lord's table is open to all who are in the family of God. So how am I made part of the family of God? By exercising saving faith and reliance in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a family meal, family dinner. Now verse 19 is, is the key statement. Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Here's the man sprawled out before Jesus in worship, and Jesus says, go, go on your way. Live your life Faith literally has saved you. That's what the Greek word there refers to. Now, it could refer to healing. Your faith has saved you from the sickness you had. You're now physically whole. You're physically healed. But the implication here is, hey, listen, all ten of them were healed, right? That's pretty clear in the text. All ten received this physical blessing from Jesus. 
But there was something different that the one got that the other nine did not. What is it that he got? He got a relationship with God through Jesus. He was saved from his sin. The other nine, it seems to be, were not. They experienced physical healing, but not spiritual salvation. You see, while all were cleansed, while all were cleansed, only one was saved. Beloved, there is a difference between experiencing blessing and receiving salvation. There is a difference between experiencing blessing and receiving salvation. We live in the Bible Belt where people have a sort of generic respect for God, for Jesus, for prayer, for for moral living. Oftentimes when I witness to people, I'm giving them the gospel and I'll say, you know, has there been a time that you've repented and put your trust in Jesus? And I'll get responses like this, you know, I, I trust God every day to meet my needs. Or I'll hear people say, you know, there was one time my, my Aunt Susie was really sick and I prayed and God healed her, and that's how I know that I'm right with God. Listen, seeing God answer prayer, seeing God provide for you, seeing God bless your children does not mean that you are right with God. God in his kindness and in his generosity sees to it that the sun rises on the just and on the unjust. God sees to it that the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. Both saved and lost experience the the, the common grace, the blessings, the kindnesses of God. Just because you've experienced healing, just because you have had some kind of a spiritually significant moment in your life, you said, man, I prayed and I felt something, does not mean that you've exercised saving faith. All ten cried out for mercy and had the leprosy taken away, but only one returned and had his sins forgiven. And maybe you're here today and you are relying on, you are trusting on a religious, spiritual experience you had at some point in your life. Man, I was sitting in a revival meeting and there was singing going on and I just felt something. You know, the music was playing softly and I just felt something and I, I signed a card or I raised my hand. Or you're saying, one time I was sick and I called out to God and, in sort of the foxhole and, man, he, he, he delivered me. That's all good and well, but that does not mean that you have repented and believed in Jesus. The question is this. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone, his death on the cross for your sins to forgive you? Has the issue of your sin and your relationship with God been settled on the basis of what God's word says? There's an eternity of difference. There'll be many people who stand before God one day and will say, Lord, Lord, I had a spiritual experience. Will will you not let me into heaven? But spiritual experiences do not mean that you enter into heaven. You can experience blessing and you can receive salvation and they're not necessarily the same. Here's another lesson we take from this. It is faith that makes the difference. Now, what is faith? Faith is not just a generic, like, I believe in God. Even the demons believe in God and they tremble, James tells us. Demons believe that God's real, right? They believe probably even in a stronger fashion than any of us in this room, and they're not right with God. Simply believing that there's one God, simply having an orthodox confession of faith, does not mean that you are saved. Genuine faith is saying, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve God's wrath. I know that I I deserve his judgment. And I am going to collapse in and put my confidence in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to submit to him as my master and my Lord what this Samaritan did. I'm going to sprawl myself out before him and say, I'm yours. 
That's faith. That's saving faith. It's trust. It's confidence in his promises. Like the Samaritan, it calls out for mercy and it returns in worship and enjoys forgiveness. Another lesson from this, there's a difference between superficial faith and saving faith. All ten experience, exercise some kind of faith. They had to believe Jesus enough to say, you know what, we'll go to the priests. But only one believed Jesus enough to say, I'm going to come back and worship. And only one left forgiven. At the end of the day, there is no difference between Jew and Samaritan. There's no difference between any ethnicity or nation. The gospel is for all. Now, we live in a world where everybody is trying to divide everybody into different little groups based on gender identity and, and race and all these things. Listen, those are all ways to try and divide people. At the end of the day, we are all sinners who stand before God as individuals. And just because your family were Christians, just because you grew up in a, in a broadly Christian culture or would like to think of our nation as being a Christian nation, doesn't mean that you are. We're sinners who need grace. Now, maybe you have come to Christ and you say, I, I know that I am forgiven. I, I identify fully with the Samaritan. I've, I, I know that my sins are forgiven. What should your response be? Exuberant worship and gratitude. Believer, are you marked by gratitude? Are you marked by genuine gratefulness for what Jesus has done for you? Not just in saving you, but all the other blessings that he has lavished on us that we don't deserve. Are you thankful for them? The Bible reminds us over and over again that we are to live a life of gratitude. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, 14, Now thanks be unto God which always causes us to triumph in Christ. 2 Corinthians 9, 15, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Hebrews 13, 15, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Colossians 3.17, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. We are meant to live lives of gratitude. In a small sense, that is what the Lord's Supper represents. Quite often through church history, it's been given a name that I think has taken on some theological baggage. It has some deep meaning, the name Eucharist, right? We talk about the Lord's Supper. And that, like I said, has theological baggage because you think sort of Roman Catholic tradition and all those things that go along with that. But what does that word mean? It's just the Greek word for thanksgiving, right? The the, the thanksgiving. Because Jesus, when he took the bread, he what? Gave thanks. He took the cup, he what? Gave thanks. And in a small sense, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are saying thank you. We're saying thank you for the cross. We are saying thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for salvation that we have received through Jesus. Let's go ahead and bow together for a word of prayer. I think it would be highly appropriate right now.